Hi everyone, welcome to the eighth episode in the ongoing series here on Sfarim Chatter, Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined once again by Professor Benjamin Gampel, who was on a previous episode on the series. And in this episode, we, we discussed, continued really from last week's episode about the riots of 1391, uh, this uh, in the kingdom of uh, Aragon. We briefly touched on Castile, but that was really the focus of last week's episode and uh, the Catholic preacher, Ferran Martinez. But this episode is more about the uh, the riots throughout Spain, but really, in, again, the kingdom of Aragon and the um, really the, the effect on the Jews and the response of the crown of Aragon, the king. And this is really Professor Gampel's specialty, an excellent book, really going through the sources that he went through. It's really very in-depth, as you'll hear, and uh, it's really a very riveting, unfortunate episode. Uh, also, we discussed with Chazak Kreskas, uh, the uh, Arashem. I, I will point out that there's been a new volume published uh, called um, his collected writings, all the writings together, including Arashem, and it has it does have in there the um, but this case, that came after we recorded the episode does have in there the letter his letter talking about the riots so I'll link to that in the show's notes to that book you can purchase that book uh, if you're interested I, we made reference to some other ways you can read the letter but it is in there as well if you're interested uh, also we do continue a little bit past being that this goes until 1391 and that really starts the Murano Converso phenomenon which as we'll get into in much more in the following episodes in the following weeks as well as in the Inquisition, etc. But this episode really, um, again, it's not thirteen ninety one. But we do in the latter half of the episode, in the second hour, it's a pretty long episode. We do, we did get into uh, the whole, uh, really, like a brief recap until, till I don't know, till the expulsion. So, you know, uh, you'll listen to that as well. Um, so there's that, and again, it's focused on the Kingdom of Aragon and the riots of thirteen ninety one. Once again, as always. I want to thank the corporate sponsor of the series, Gluck Plumbing. So for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Uh, I want to thank them, as I do every week on this series, and uh, they sponsor Shop CC series, but really, if you have a plumbing need in New Jersey, Call them, tell them to listen to this Farm Chatter podcast, and you heard about them. Um, also, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode, uh, as always, it's $360 an episode. You can email me. You can. There's a PayPal link in the show's notes. Uh, there's Zelle, uh, Chase QuickPay. That's uh, with farmchatter at gmail.com uh, email address. Um, and again, any smaller amount, lesser amount is appreciated. Anyone who's given, I appreciate it. Uh, um, you know, the monetary support and uh, very much appreciated. Uh, also, additionally, anyone, everyone that has uh, subscribed, I appreciate that as well. Also rating and reviewing, especially on Apple and Spotify, but Apple, you can review. I appreciate that. Uh, and again, subscribe wherever you listen. I've mentioned 24-6 a bunch of times. Great service, as I've spoken about them, with all, all the Jewish music uh, on 24-6. You can listen there, subscribe there and wherever else it is that you listen. Uh, also, if you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, email me. And I will try to get back to you. And uh, with that, enjoy the episode uh, number eight of the series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again by Professor 
Benjamin Gampel, who holds the Dinah and Eli Field Family Chair in Jewish History at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And we're for this episode in the series on Spanish Jewry, we'll be discussing the riots uh, of 1391-1392, mainly in Aragon, the crown of Aragon, and which is uh, Professor Gampel wrote a very comprehensive work on this. So thank you, Professor Gampel, for joining me once again. Nachi, it's lovely to be here. So let's start off. I want to start off with a with a kind of a, a global question. I think listeners are very familiar with 1492 and the expulsion. That's like everybody knows about Spain and the Inquisition. But 1391 was really the beginning of the end, I, I would say. It really was, you know, so that is really kind of in some ways more important. I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but why is it this just gets like forgotten in general history of Spain for the general public? It's not, I, I people can correct me, but I feel like it's not so well known. Okay. Um, as you can imagine, 1492 is a date that is so significant in Jewish history, but it's also significant in world history. And therefore, especially as people who follow the history of the Jews, we gravitate towards dates where there's an overlapping between our own particular interests and the interests of the world. And that we would see both these dates from different perspectives is something that also enforces our and reinforces our identity as Jews. The sense that the world moves as it does, maybe commemorating Columbus's discoveries, uh, maybe commemorating Ferdinand and Isabella's conquest of Muslim Granada, but we Jews have another focus. The reason why 1492 is also very intriguing because it is the expulsion of a large and prosperous Jewish community. And that grabs our attention, especially those of us over the last number of decades in the wake of what took place in the 20th century. The demise of a Jewish community is riveting. And in the case of Spain, or really, to be more technical, the expulsion from Castile and Aragon, it's also the beginning of exile. So it not only has Gerush, it also has Gola. We are intrigued about the story of how Sephardic Jews uproot themselves and move to other areas around the Mediterranean and their battle to maintain their customs. That is an intriguing story. And that is why 1492 does capture people's imagination. But Nacha, you're correct. In retrospect, the riots that I chronicled in 1391-1392 is the beginning of the end. But frankly, no one then would have known that that's how things would turn out. Um, I do say that folks who study Jewish history know about the riots of 1391, and folks who study Iberian history know about it as well. It was an understudied moment in both Jewry, Jewish history and in Spanish history. I want to start off almost at the end of, the, of this, of the riots, just to give a sense of the magnitude of the riots, of how of the riots that are occurring. And, and your book is focused on the crown of Aragon, but there also is in Castile and other parts of the Iberian Peninsula. But just to, to, again, to convey a sense of the magnitude of how many Jews were killed, how many were forcibly converted, Yes, 
This, these were riots of great magnitude. Whether we can express that magnitude in actual numbers, that's a challenge that historians face. Oh, that doesn't mean that historians don't jump into the breach and offer you wildly exaggerated numbers. The first thing that I think we all and our listeners have to understand is that numbers and population figures in the Middle Ages were very small. So, for example, taking something outside of our discussion today, perhaps 3,000 Jews or Jewish families were expelled from England in 1290. I'm going to imagine, Nachi, not knowing where it is you're sitting where I'm speaking to you, that 3,000 Jews may just occupy a number of square blocks in either direction from your location. So we have to understand that numbers are quite different. The second thing is we don't have any reliable figures. And the people who did write about the riots, we had episodic rendering of numbers. So the great Chastai Kreskes philosopher and courtier, who I'm sure we're going to return to, comes up with fantastic numbers of Jews who were killed in Seville and Jews who lived there, five to 7,000 people. My goodness. I doubt there were that many Jews at any point in their history. Um, but again, medieval writers weren't people, weren't census takers. What he was trying to essentially underscore is how many people there were, that it was a large community. When it comes to other towns, he offers exact numbers of how many people converted or may have killed. So unfortunately, I won't be able to answer your question. I can say perhaps a few thousand Jews were killed. And we're going to imagine that many more converted. But that's the best that we can say with any sense that we're telling you what actually took place. Yeah, and the con converts become the converso, Moranos, and this is where we end up with on the road to the Inquisition and to the expulsion. Okay, so now to start off with the riots. Um, what's the situation like and the lead up to 1391 between Jews and Christian? What is their interaction between the two? And, you know, was, what were, were tensions coming to a building point? I would love to tell you that they were, because it's always comforting to us when we think that terrible tragedies that take place, that there's a clear linear progression of hatred. But I will tell you that the Jews who lived in uh, Christian Iberia, they were uh, quite successful in the 13th century and even in the 14th century. I'm going to imagine that some of your listeners have even traveled to Spain and may have even visited Toledo on some tour. And maybe they walked into the El Transito synagogue, which is glorious. The reason why, Nachi, I tell you that it's glorious is because I also want to tell you that it was built in the 1350s. This glorious synagogue, which reflects enormous wealth. We know who supplied the money. The chief treasurer of King Pedro I. We know Muslim artisans did the gorgeous filigree work. And we also know that at the Mizrach, at the Eastern Wall, dedication was inscribed to King Pedro. Seems pretty good, doesn't it? Mid-14th century, Jewish political power economic leverage, able to produce a gorgeous building that really reflects so beautifully on 
their own religion. Jews in Aragon, maybe not as successful, but also could speak about a degree of comfort, a degree of security. We must remember that Jews are living in Christian Iberia because of a sometimes explicitly said, but also unsaid contract between the rulers and the Jews. The Jews provide them with much economic success, and the rulers in turn, whether at the royal or municipal level, protect the Jews. Mid-14th century, though, there's a civil war in Castile. There's a war between Castile and Aragon. The Black Death breaks out in, the, in Aragon, and we see an increase in anti-Jewish attitudes. Is there a straight line? No. But you have economic jealousy, economic hatred, coupled with religious anti-Judaism. That's always a potent mix. The question that we have to ask ourselves, Nachi, is that kind of anti-Jewish animus is always present in society. The question is, why does it erupt? And we don't exactly know. We can theorize, and I'm happy to theorize along with you and talk about economic competition and talk about anti-Judaism, but if you then pressed me, Nachi, as you're capable of doing, to say exactly what precisely are you referring to? I would just fall back on platitudes. So that's why in my book that you mentioned very graciously, I focus on the protection of the government. In other words, there are always moments of outbursts against the Jews, but things are kept under control. But that didn't happen in 1391. Not in the Kingdom of Castile, not in the Crown of Aragon. Jews were protected in the kingdom of Portugal to the west and the kingdom of Navarre to the north. Before we get more into this, I think we should actually pause for a second and in parentheses, discuss the geography of the time period. I know in our previous episode, on like our overview at the beginning of Spanish Jewry, we did talk about this, but I think at this point in the late 14th century, let's, ex let's explain to the listeners where Castile, the crown of Aragon, Navarre is, Portugal, and, you know, Valencia, part of the Crown of Aragon, just explain what, a little um, bit what's going on. I'm happy to. Uh, in the 13th century was the era of major Christian conquests in the peninsula, uh, fighting against the Muslims ever since the 11th century. And the 13th century was a massive breakthrough. And there are four Christian kingdoms in the peninsula in its wake. If you can imagine Spain and Portugal, today Spain and Portugal in your minds, everybody, Portugal is pretty much in the same spot all the way on the west. You then come to the heartland of the peninsula, the center, and you have the kingdom of Castile combined from a few other kingdoms. And then as you're moving your eyes from left to right, on the eastern side, you have the federated crown of Aragon. Nice language. What does it mean? It means that Aragon, the crown of Aragon, is composed of a kingdom of Aragon, the central, east-central part of the peninsula, the Principality of Catalonia. You know Catalonia, you know its capital, Barcelona, on the Mediterranean. 
and the Kingdom of Valencia further south, also on the Mediterranean. Kingdom of Navarre, bordered by Aragon and Castile, is in the north center of the peninsula. And then there's Muslim Granada on the on the southeast. Yes, thank you for reminding me. The Muslims, the Muslims are pushed into a corner around Granada, the Emirate of Granada, which lasts until, not surprisingly, January of 1492. Okay, so now the riots. As you said, you'll you'll fall back on platitudes, but we can theorize here. We start with the riots and. We start in the Kingdom of Castile because I guess that's where they start. And you can tell people now there's another yes. episode in this in the series I want you to discuss more of Castile and Ferran Martinez. And your book is dedicated to the crown of Aragon anyway, so it's good. But we have to mention him and his preaching and what happens in Castile before we can move on to Aragon. So definitely, floor is yours. Definitely, and I'm happy to offer you my thoughts. Um, what we do know is that riots in Seville begin with. The Archdeacon of Esija, Ferrante Martinez, Esija being outside of Seville, he coming into Seville with his mob, destroying the 23 synagogues that were there, killing Jews, and forcibly converting many. We have very little information, Nachi, about the riots in Castile. Almost none. And that's why our bit of information about Ferrante Martinez and his preaching has captured our attention. If we would have the rich sources that we had for the crown of Aragon, and that's why I spent so many years reading those sources, we would be able to give a larger picture of what was taking place in the cities and towns of Castile, relationships between Jews and Christians. But all we have is the preaching of an anti-Jewish individual who was kept out of the city for 10, 15 years. The Jewish community was aware of him. The Bishop of Seville, the Archbishop of Seville, the Cardinal also prevented his entry. The King was against him. But the King died. It was an underage monarch. The Archbishop of Seville died in early 1391. And no one was there, no central authority, if you will, minding the store. I wish I could tell you that Ferrante Martinez is the cause of the riots. We say it because that's all we know. And also, since you're talking about platitudes, it's a trope that everyone loves. The trope of the anti-Semitic Christian priest who spews vile, and he actually lived and existed. That's always good for Jewish historians. It's always a nice trope. It's also good for Iberian historians. Ah, it was just a fanatical individual. One person preaching. What that does is, while it's true, it doesn't allow us to see the much larger picture of how the Jewish and Christian population interacted, and why there were rights, not just in Seville, but then in Cordoba, then in Chayet, and in Ubeda, and in Bayeta, and in Toledo, and in Burgos. Wow. That can't just be one preacher who is out of control. And this is before the age of social media. So the riots are not going live on Instagram. Or on WhatsApp chat. It's not but I have to tell you the power. It's an interesting comment because the power of rumor still affects and infects. 
And Cordoba is not that far from Seville. So you can get a couple of folks who maybe are traveling there, but the word is out. Jews have been killed, they've been forcibly converted, and nobody has harmed the rioters. That's quite a stimulus to actually examine where the riots took place. And I do provide a map and just shows how widespread it was. But at the same time, what we don't have on the map, Nachi, are the towns where the riots didn't take place. And we can't, we can only wonder, but we don't know why that's true. And we can talk more about that as well. Mm. Now, the rioters themselves, these were the regular, regular, quote-unquote, regular people, peasants, folk, whatever we, it was? Ah, so we have information. Whom do we have information from? Governmental officials. So they talk about the rabble, the pueblo menudo, the small people, the lumpen proletariat. Obviously, people who are in municipal government will always cast aspersions on those who are unfortunate and the poor rabble who can't be controlled. If you're looking for continuity in political history, here you have it. We know in the crown of Aragon, if I may jump as the riots did, Following the 10 actual months of the riot, we see all these explanations. Oh, it's just a fanatical priest. Oh, it's just the Franciscans who did it. Oh, it's the visitors. Oh, it's followers of the Archdeacon Ferrante Martinez. The reality is, as the story keeps developing, everybody's in on it. It's far more frightening. And as you tell it in your book, it's quite riveting in an unfortunate sense. It really is. In the beginning, as it spreads, and you start with the city of Valencia. So I think we should start there, post-Castile. And, and how there are, there are concerns among the city council, among the, the local government, that this is going to occur. So as you mentioned, they heard the rumors. There are concerns. So what do they do to address these concerns? And then how does it actually start? Ah, so... It is a wonderful segue because the riots in that Stan Seville is in early June of 1391. The riots break out on July 9th of 1391 in Valencia, which is quite a distance away. Seville being uh, closer to the Atlantic coast, and if you can imagine, also the border with Portugal, and Valencia being on the Mediterranean. Riots break out, but yes, the king is concerned. We have letters that he sends to a variety of officials in Valencia. Watch out. Things are happening. Municipal leaders are aware. They issue edicts. There are curfews. There are uh, gallows set up at different uh, points in the Jewish quarter. In case anybody thought that they'd like to harm the Jews, this will be your end. But it's a Sunday morning. July 9th in Valencia. And there are a couple of hundred young Christian boys on a religious outing. They're wearing crosses fastened on their vests, knitted of reeds. They walk across the city. We know that. And then they start milling about the Jewish quarter. And calling out, 
die, Jews, die. Oh, my goodness. Not only that, calling out the Archdeacon of Seville is coming. We can imagine that. We can picture that, can't we? The Jews are debating amongst themselves. What should we do? Debate whether they should close the doors to the quarter. They finally decide they're going to do it. But a few Christian children have already gone inside. The doors are locked. And perhaps one of the Christian youths, their fingers are stuck in the door that is closed. Cries go up from the youths inside the quarter. That they're killing us. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And the Jewish quarter is open because it's situated very importantly between the port and other quarters of the city. Travelers, merchants are constantly moving back and forth. Oh, say people milling about the plaza joining the youth, there are Christians inside. Throngs of people begin to mass around the quarter of Valencia in the Plata de Figuera in front of the archway. We know where it is. We know where in Valencia it still stands. And screaming and calling and children screaming from the inside. Wow. It touches on all the anti-Jewish tropes of Christian children being harmed by Jews. Christians are innocent. They gather around. Valencia, especially in that area, was also in need of urban renewal. People gather on the roofs, the flat roofs of the houses. They gather on sewage pipes overlooking the quarter. They start shooting uh, in crossbows. Misbelievers come. They send a note to the Duke. The Duke is the younger brother of the king who's in Valencia because he's off on a military expedition to Sicily. They travel. They try to quiet the crowd. The doors are opened. Oh, my God. Jews are harmed. They're killed. They're set upon. Anti-Judaism, yes. Oh, there are also Jewish notaries near the doorways of the quarter. There are also Jewish moneylenders near the doorway. As you know, in cities, you come in and you see money changers. It's very, very effective to be placed there. People come in, they ransack. There's money to be had. There are uh, debt contracts to be ripped up. You can't disentangle financial incentives and religious hatred, nor can you disentangle people who are massed in a mob, who feel that they are righteously attacking people, not of their faith, who they can see, not always as their enemies. Mayhem, riots, murder, rape, when violence is unleashed, even the most pious get caught up in the storm of emotion. Now, how does the 
forced conversions come into this? One can imagine that under pressure, with rioters, people are looking for a way out. Duke Marti says to his brother that night, now remember, whenever you have letters, like we have emails today, or any sorts of correspondence, we have to read it for information, but we also have to understand who the writer is, who is being written to, and what other goals they have. The Duke tells his brother, I'm on top of it, but in order to mitigate the wickedness of the Christians, what I've done is I've set up priests on the tallest hill of the city so Jews could go there. And I think that baptism might calm the crowd down. Perhaps there were already some baptisms beforehand. And some people who are more religiously oriented, perhaps when the Jew they were about to harm, murder, declares an interest maybe in joining the other side, that there's certain physical relief. And there seems to be evidence the next day as well. That was one of the wonderful things about historical sources, Nachi, because I'm also talking as a historian who stitched together the history. By focusing on such a small time period and on day to day, I can find the Duke's letter to the King. I can find the King's letter. I can find the municipal uh, records of their coming into council the next day and how they report what took place. And clearly they see that baptism seems to have an effect on quieting the city. City fathers may have issues with Jews, but nobody wants riots. Riots is mayhem. Mayhem can harm everyone. Both the king, for his reasons, and the municipal council, for their reasons, are concerned also about property. Robbery. You can't countenance robbery, people taking somebody else's property. First, it's me, it's them, rather, and the next day... It could be the wealthy city dwellers. There's great concern. There's great concern. On Monday, there are riots against the Muslims. It's not just the Jews. But that's where baptism comes into the story. So as best you can tell, this is something promoted by the government. So it's not the church. Is it? It's not the local Peasants saying here again, we, we can never. I'm against, if you will, reducing things to convincing arguments or people. We'd love to say the church. The Duke presents it to his brother as hey, I'm just trying to quiet things down here. What do we know about the Duke Martivo Nachi? We know that in his other writings, he was very excited about the millennium approaching. By the way, there was great millennial excitement in 1391 of Jesus' second coming, and therefore to honor his second coming, you do messianic activity beforehand, which involves the conversion of the Jews. So yes, it fits into his ecclesiastical agenda as well. 
there are members of the church who look for conversion of the Jews, but just the same, there are, if not more, members of the church that are vehemently opposed to forced conversion. Because that's against canon law. And they're not happy with forced conversion because they feel that a soul can only accept Christianity willingly of their free will. So it's, if you will, a perfect storm of some priest's beliefs of the Duke's ideas, plus his desire to tranquilize the population of municipal authorities also interested in containing the riots. And baptism is bloodless. So that's what I was going to ask you is what is the response of the government in the city of Valencia before it spreads? Are they responding to municipal authorities? And you mentioned the Duke advocating baptism. Is that the response? They are. They bring, they ring the quarter. They have guards stationed. It's bigger than they are. But uh, violence and spasms of violence come to an end. And then the municipality has to pick up the pieces. Officially, for those of you who are listening, I just put air quotes next to my head. Officially, the government is against the baptism. But practically, it's also seen as positive especially when you have mobs of people, as develops later, noblemen, city dwellers, city fathers, and by the way, poor people too, and folks who signed up with Duke Marti for his military expedition. This is Sunday morning. They're all at leisure. And this is quite an exciting moment. Now, from the city of Valencia, it spreads in the kingdom of Valencia, part of the it crown does. of Aragon. If you can imagine everybody, if you can picture in your own minds um, the Iberian Peninsula, try to figure out north and south and east and west. East is the Mediterranean. The kingdom of Valencia is in the southeastern corner. So from Valencia, it moves up the coast, a variety of other towns. And then riders don't know boundaries in the federated crown of Aragon. So it moves from Valencia northward to Catalonia, eventually arriving in Barcelona in early August. Riots also travel across the seas. Mallorca, part of the crown of Aragon, of the federated crown. Riots break out there too in early August. And as I discovered in my readings, something which had not been spoken about, riots take place in Sardinia, in Cayer and Alguero, part of the crown of Aragon, or the internet. But there are travelers and it's infectious. Because latent anti-Judaism for economic and for religious reasons are there. And sometimes a spark is sufficient. 
I don't know if you have any specific, uh, the book is obviously full of specific instances and stories sure. and various things. And of course, mm-hmm. listeners will have to read the book, but if you have any, you can mention. And then, and then we get to Barcelona. Please, please. But let's start with Barcelona because Valencia, by the way, folks should know, was a very, very important city of Jews. It's an important port town. Um, your readers would want to know also that there uh, were synagogues in this port town. There are uh, Jews who are illustrious, not only financially, but also religiously. The great Rabbi Yitzchak Barsheshet Perfet, who was a student of uh, Ran, Nisim Gerondi, known as Rabbeinu Nisim of Girona, uh, was studied in Barcelona with Ran, with the Ran. He's a rabbi in Saragossa. I was just kidding with Nachi before, but he ran into trouble with some quite difficult, uh, wealthy Balabatim in uh, Saragossa, and then takes up a rabbinic position in Valencia. The pressure on Yitzhak Barsheshet Perfet must have been extraordinary. This is not an open and shut case but all the evidence that we have points to, yes, that Rabbi Yitzhak Barsheshet Perfet converted to Christianity and donned Franciscan robes, perhaps for about a year, year and a half, until he flees to North Africa, where he resumes his rabbinic career. Folks must have known but they also knew the extraordinary duress. There is speculation and there's reason, there are grounds for this speculation, that he may have been forced to do so by threats of criminal cases against him, against others, that would have possibly caused greater harm. Some of you listeners might know, and I know you didn't ask me this, Nachi, but I'm going to bring it up. Even though this is, uh, I am a fine uh, scholar of medieval Sepharad, but often in uh, hmm, the last century, common parlance, oh, in Ashkenaz it was different. And people will mention 1096. I'm sure you've had podcasts about it. If not, you will, and you should, or you will do more. But the evidence that we have for Kiddush Hashem so-called Kiddush Hashem, in 1096 during the Crusades, was written about 50 years later. And what it was is, was a retelling of Jews killing themselves and killing members of their family, what we would say suicide and homicide, that was then recast by a pious author as Kiddush Hashem. What I'm telling you about, and that's why 1391 is extraordinary is we have evidence what took place in each town, hundreds and hundreds of documents. What do we see? We see Jews killed. We see Jews baptized as evidence. If you read the Crusade Chronicles carefully, there is much baptism that takes place. And we have in 1391 much evidence of suicide. I don't see, because sometimes, you know, Nachi, Jewish history becomes really the 
place where we argue about contemporary Jewish life. So in some telling is Sephardic Jews, ah, they're more rational and concrete and businessmen. So of course they converted and said positively. And others would say Ashkenazi Jews truly have a sense of martyrdom and of giving up their lives because they are truly pious. I'd like to move away from these two tropes and to understand Ashkenazi Jews as Sephardi Jews as pious and as calculating and as businessmen and as human. And the Crusades saw homicide and suicide and baptism. And what we are talking about today is Sephardic Jews, who we know were killed in the few thousands, baptized probably far more and evident in many, many towns, not of a later pious writer, but of municipal authorities speaking about, in Barcelona, for example, Jews tossing themselves into wells, killing themselves, or horrific to imagine throwing your children into bodies of water so that they not be contaminated by Christianity. Folks, we can always put the label of Kiddush Hashem, but I think if I'm a historian, I think, I think what we should try to do is imagine the terror. Imagine the terror of those who are killed before they die. Imagine the terror of those who are raped. Imagine those who are fleeing for their lives and see baptism as a salvation, maybe for a moment. Imagine the fear that your children will be brought up as Christians whom you've seen in such negative light. And you'd rather kill your children rather than have them contaminated. These don't admit of easy religious slogans. And I think an appreciation of their humanity will go really a long way just to appreciate the saga of Jewish people. Yeah, yeah, really, really so. And and you mentioned the Rivash, the uh, one of the great Rishonim, who you know, as you say, with the with the uh, conversion, and then he runs away and eventually, uh, you know, and in read, Africa. This isn't part of my book, but read the Chuvot of Rivash. Read the first number Chuvot. They pretty much go chronologically. And when he talks about the Anusim, and he uses the term Anus, we're now comfortable with that, the idea of forced. But he understands what it means to be forced. Understand his compassion and also understand his harshness. He leaves and he wants others to leave. And following there in footsteps of Rambam, again, this gets us way beyond. I understand conversion. I understand it takes place. Rivash understands it. Rambam understands it. But what do you do? You get out as soon as you can. But let's move back to the riots. Yeah, let's move back to the riots and let's move back to Barcelona. Please. Barcelona, glorious city on the Mediterranean. Still a beautiful city. Suffered tremendously from the Black Death because... The plague moved on waterways. Yes, Jews were notable people within the city. Great synagogues, great academies of Jewish learning. We mentioned the Academy of Nisim Girondi, who had glorious students. Rivash, Chastai Kreskes. Must have been pretty nice classes he ran. These were leaders. 
of not only of their town, but also saw themselves leaders that could represent the jury of the crown of Aragon. The main city in the crown of Aragon, its capital Morsa was in the kingdom of Aragon, was Saragossa, but between Saragossa and Barcelona. These are great Jewish towns. Riots break out. Jews are attacked, but Jews are attacked alongside Christian institutions, alongside the prisons, alongside municipal governmental authorities, alongside notaries. This is an attack which shows there's a strong anti-Jewish element. There's an anti-authoritarian element against the authority of the king, against the authority of municipal leaders. It's also the rebellion of poor people against wealthy individuals. It's a rebellion. Barcelona's great city has its environs of people, poor people who come into Barcelona, who sell agricultural products, fishermen who sell their wares in the city. It's also a fight against outsiders, outsiders geographically, outsiders economically, who are fighting against people who they see are harming them religiously, politically. Riots continue for days. Chastai Crescus, whose wonderful letter tells us about the riots, Chastai Crescus is not only well known today as one of the greatest Jewish philosophers of all time, a, a massive intellect. Chastai Crescus also has a day job. He is a major, major player at the Aragonese court, and specifically the Queen Yolande. Chastai Crescus, where in his letter he speaks sometimes in just short sentences about what takes place in some of the towns, but about, Valenz, about Barcelona, he devotes the majority of his letter. He knows that had authoritarian, anti-authoritarian impulses. He knows his anti-economic impulses. He understands that the riots first weren't against the Jews, but then they were. He records how the Jews are gathered up into a fortress, the Castel Nou, the new castle, which you can still see today. At least you can still see its foundations because there's an apartment house built on top of it and a nice hat store on the bottom. You can see how the Jews are moved out of their quarter. They come into the tower, but they are attacked in the tower. And who is among the in the tower? Here's a personal element, Nachi. Chastai Crescus's son and his family is in the tower. In the archives of the Crown of Aragon, you have Chastai Crescus's letters to the king, to the queen, to others. The responses of these officials we have preserved, and we have the letters that they send to a variety of people, aside from keeping the peace, which they always send. But they're in Saragossa, and they say, Chastai Crescus, our intimate, his family and his compania, are to know, his entourage, 
save them. And what's the tragedy? Well, the tragedy is hundreds of Jews are killed. The tragedy is that even the most well-connected courtier, like Chastai Kreskes, he writes in a cryptic phrase, he talks about his son, his son, and he says, some of you Tanakh wizards out there knows that this is not, as some scholars have seen it, through the prism of the Akedah, but of Yiftach. This is Sefer Shoftim. What does that mean? Some people thought maybe like Avraham Avinu, he sacrificed his only son, but Chazakras was in Saragossa at the royal court. He didn't enter Barcelona. No one could enter Barcelona in his right mind during these days, and especially while Jews are being massacred. Castacrescus' son dies. It might be, and I say this, here's time for speculation, but we know in 1392, Castacrescus, as many Sephardic Jews earlier, get permission from the king to marry a second wife. Not because of the cherem, the Rabbeinu Gershom, which was roundly ignored, because obviously it was just a local Ashkenazi tradition, but it's because Christians were monogamous. He has to get permission to marry a second wife, so the children of the second wife will be recognized as legitimate heirs. And you could wonder and speculate that maybe he hoped he would have a son, another son. I'm now Pure, pure speculation, but I underscore it to see how Jews are harmed, even wealthy, most connected, pious, brilliant Jews were harmed as well. And where we get to at the end of Barcelona, the Ramban, there's other many Jews in Barcelona, but a famous Jewish city, the Chaz de Crescas writes. There is no one today that goes by the name Jew in Barcelona. As you write, he writes this on October 19th, which is terrible. And he was right. Because his information that he has, Nachi, on the crown of Aragon is pretty accurate. It's none of that four to 5,000 that he says about Seville. Talks about 250 people dying in Valencia. It comes down to earth, if you will. The, the city fathers, the municipal leaders decide later on that they can't afford to have a Jewish community in Barcelona creates too much unrest. And the king wants, this goes beyond the, the 10 months of the rights, wants to restart a Jewish community in Barcelona. Not because necessarily he is a lover, he is an Ohev Israel. He may or may not be. What is important to note is that the Jewish community is a very important source of taxation and money and connections. In Valencia, the Jewish community was owned by the queen. In Barcelona, it's the king, it's the monarchy. But the municipal leaders don't want a Jewish community. And of course, we could say anti-Judaism, of course it is. But it's also understanding of rulers who say, it's just not worth it. 
because they're also protecting themselves. That's one of the more frightening conclusions, as you know, Nachi, that comes out of this book. That even the individuals who promise to protect the Jews, and even if we accept that their promises were well meant, and I think they were, although they harbored anti-Jewish prejudice, Rulers in all times have a multiplicity of interests. They have to protect the Jews, but in what way is that cost-effective? In what way does it harm me? Am I going to protect people who are going to put my government and my wealth and my security at risk? I don't want to get more to that in a little bit, Um, but... Before that, um, as well, for, first of all, we mentioned Chesed Kreskes a bunch of times. For listeners who aren't familiar, he was the author of Ar Hashem, famous uh, Jewish philosophical work, and he was the, I guess, to be known as his, his student in some ways is more famous, the base of Albo, the say for Ikram. I think for some people, I, I find that some people maybe know him more. No, Yosef Albo is a wonderful student. Say for Ikarim is a is an exceptional book which puts dogma on the face of uh, Judaism in a very very powerful way. Kreskis's philosophical argumentation is seen to be path-breaking, his critique of Aristotle. He's truly an avant-garde of European philosophers. So when you said nicely to your audience, you know, the famous book, Or Hashem, most Jews did not know of this book over time. And we could track when he was known and when he was not known. And what they know less about and what didn't get carried over, and that, of course, gets to me, is his activities at the Aragonese court. He spent his adult life there. He comes from an aristocratic Jewish family, an aristocracy of wealth, an aristocracy of rabbinic learning. His grandfather is involved in the Jewish community. He is born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's brilliant. He has the best of education. And he's ambitious. And in his letter, he talks about the dispersal of monies to the government in order to help the Jews. And he says, I have to imagine bitterly, that all we're left with is the clothes on our back. That's all we have. If I may, I'd like to, this happens to be things I'm working on now after the book, to appreciate Jews who are involved in work at the court, whether it's today or whether it's hundreds of years ago. And they put their life and their energy on the line. And they feel that they can best serve the Jewish people because of their contacts. And what do they see after the riots are over? We weren't able to do enough. And his letter, in some ways, is a justification of his actions. This is what we did. But you know, even afterwards, it's still the same 
challenges that Jewish leaders face. It's not easy being a minority people, depending on, dependent on the goodwill of others. It never is. I think Chazal understood that very, very well. It's not summertime yet, Nachi, unless that's when this program will be distributed. But a simple uh, wandering through the garden of Pirkei Avot will yield you enough quotes to help support that notion. Yes. Okay. So uh, the next place after Barcelona is Girona, right? Or people yes. Like Girondi. Yeah, this famous. Yes. And you mentioned Great Iran. Great city. City of Nachmanides. City of Ramban. Yes. I shouldn't call him by his Greek name that he, he received in the 14th century, son of Nachman. But yes, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. Great, pioneering, path-breaking commentator on the Torah, who for the first time in a public, public forum is yielding Kabbalistic secrets while claiming that he hasn't. Polemicist against Christianity. He raises a school of Makubalim in Girona. His relative, we say kinsman, that usually means we don't know how they're related. Rabbeinu Yona, the moralist, right? You know, some of your folks might know more than Or Hashem Sha'arei Tshuva, I would imagine. I'm just guessing. This is an important city in Catalonia. Again, riots, again, attacks, again, a tower, again, the tower attacked, again, conversions, and again, the municipal leaders first blaming others, then people blaming priests, then people blaming poor people, then people blaming outsiders. Everybody had a portion in these attacks. And if you can imagine the Jews, let's say by those who want to protect the Jews, who sincerely want to protect the Jews. So you have to protect them in what way? And we've seen from our conversation so far, there are two ways to protect them. Either put them into a fortress, that's a physical protection, or... The shelf, as I write, the sheltering canopy of Christianity. Maybe the aura of baptism protect them. What is fascinating, by the way, Muslims are attacked in many of the cities in 1391. We need someone to write that story as well. It's even less known than the attacks on the Jews. But going through the documents, you see how Muslims were attacked in Valencia, in other places, especially where the Muslims lived in the kingdom of Valencia. But I have been come across any evidence of Muslims being baptized or Muslims being brought into fortresses. Muslims are physically left alone. That doesn't mean that's good for them because they could be killed, and they were. But I do have letters that there is fear. Oh my goodness, if 
the word gets out that the Muslims are killed, the Muslims will come from Morocco and they'll invade the peninsula. Now, that fantasy of a Muslim invasion of the peninsula was being bandied about for centuries. Didn't happen already for 300 years. By the way, in Christian Europe, it's still bandied about the idea of the Muslim horde that will attack Christendom. But it's precisely that fear that led them not to, I think, to bring them to the baptismal font or even to herd them into any particular spot. Possibly also many areas, the farmers who were Muslim would have been harder to gather them together as opposed to the Jews who were mainly found in an urban environment. Was there also a fear of retribution against Christians in Muslim lands? Not said explicitly. It's mostly, uh-oh, they're going to come here. It's, you know, the idea that we have about Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh, or Christians care about Christians all over the world and Muslims do. As we all know, it's true up to a point. So now in Girona, which is at Catalonia, I think we mentioned Barcelona, Girona, but King of Aragon. So besides those cities, where you know there's some other smaller places that that this yes, happens. There are. If you see the map, you if you I see Nachi, you have the map in front of you, so I can have the map in front of me too. This could be also a good way of also promoting my volume on page. Uh, 25, doesn't it say sites in the crown of Aragon where Jews were killed and harmed? And my goodness, in in Catalonia, Perpignan, and Collioure, and Figueres, and Bessalou, and Vic, and Manresa, and Bergan, Puigcerda, and Camarasa, Taruga, Lleida, Mont Blanc, Villafranca del Penedès. My goodness. My goodness. You can also see that therefore Jews are populating the countryside. They're not just in the major cities. That's going to be extraordinarily difficult for Jews. Can you imagine? The riots are over or coming to a close. You live in a town. Taxation is high. Maybe a couple of your wealthy Jews have been killed. And also, frankly, a couple of your wealthy Jews were had enough money and resources at hand to escape the rioters. And then you're left with an impoverished town with the same financial responsibilities, with no religious leaders and no information. And just because the riots are over the next day, that doesn't mean the threat of rioting does not hang over your head. Just tap into that anxiety and what that must have looked like. So the riots, Nachi continue for 10 months. The last place they play out is in the kingdom of Aragon, which is further inland. In the city of Chaka, it's a mountainous town. Now, riots just don't come to an end because somebody, you know, announces the riots are over. 
it's just through my looking through documents, I begin to see that there's a month or two months or three months where nothing is taking place. Oh, there can be an occasional Jew who was harmed. But unfortunately, that's just the nature of living. I shouldn't say in the Middle Ages, but in modern times as well. One place that we didn't mention is really Saragossa, which is where the king and queen are. What happens there? What happens there, Nachi, is that nothing happens there. And that's the biggest news. Who's in Saragossa? Oh, yes, Chastai Kreskis, who left Barcelona to take a rabbinic post in Saragossa. By the way, might you think that he took the rabbinic post in Saragossa also to be closer to the royal court so he could continue his connections with the royal government? So Crescus is there, King Joan is there, Queen Yolande is there. And the king writes in his letters, among his other things, haven't gotten to those personages yet, maybe we will for a bit, that I'm staying here in Barcelona. I mean, in Saragossa, rather. I'm trying to keep the city together. And for once, we can actually believe him because no riots break out in Saragossa. Where is Saragossa? You need to find out if we mentioned where it is. It's on the Ebro River that goes from the north central part of the peninsula. It first starts out um, uh, in, well, the, the headwaters, perhaps in Castile, crosses into the uh, the Kingdom of Navarre crosses into Aragon and empties out in the city of Tortosa, which is part of Catalonia. So, as you mentioned, there, again, there are other places more discussed in the book, but you mentioned the, the king and the queen. And interestingly, I don't think I read the title of your book. The title of your book is <laughs> Anti-Jewish Riot in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response. 1391-1392, Cambridge University Press, by the way. So forgot the title. But the second half of the title is the second half of the book. We yes. just basically discussed the first half of the book. The second half of the book is the royal response and the response of the, the king and queen. And I think just as a, as a, as a first thing, as a, just as a general question is, you mentioned in Saragossa they protected the community. But how, how come it, 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 it how come the rest of the of the kingdom, they, they just they didn't? Is it not, did they not try? Were they trying, as you show? Did this, well, was it not powerful? Was no one listening? What was going on? Yes. Well, first, let me start with the title. I have to tell you, Nachi, that when I was thinking of the title of the book, I didn't come up with anti-Jewish riots in the Crown of Aragon, the Royal Response, 1391 to 1392. I didn't think that exactly would jump out at folks. What my title really was, and I don't think I mentioned this to you, I do use the title in the book, was As If the Jews Had No Lord. That was the original title. The publishers at Cambridge University Press, may God bless them, said correctly to me, if that's the title of the book, it's going to be filed in the self-help section or in the religion section. We need something that's eminently findable, computer-wise. And they're correct. But they're also correct because they read the manuscript. I know, and now we know, about the riot overwhelmingly because of documents that were preserved in the Royal Archive of the Crown of Africa. And of all those documents that were preserved, they even survived Napoleon. 
of the documents that were preserved, we have the letters of the king, the letters of the queen, and the letters of the king's younger brother, the Duke of Montblanc. The names are Joan, Yolande, and Marty. The information I have about the riots comes from their letters in the May. So on one hand, they're the source of the information, but on the other hand, they tell me a story that I did not expect to find when I entered all the archives, which is how the royal government, which promised and said it was the Jews' protectors, how they behaved. And what do I find? I find a king and queen who know that the Jews are very important to their treasury, who send letters consistently to protect the Jews. But I also find people. King Joan, and I trace his biography in shortened form, we know about him since he was a little child. We know how he was raised by his father, Pere III, domineering man, powerful king. May sound very modern to us, but Joan was always uncomfortable not knowing about how much time to allot to his royal responsibilities, and how much to a lot to fun and leisure. We also know about Joan that as a youth, as a prince, he got very caught up in host desecration accusations. Even somebody who wasn't that interested in ruling, but the idea that Jews might have snuck in to the sacristy of a church at night, taken the consecrated wafers they'll be used in the Eucharist. That galvanized his attention. That a silver custodia or pyx containing the wafers are taken. Now I want you to imagine, have some religious imagination if you're taking the consecrated wafers, everyone. What is he scared of? That the body of Christ is now in the hands of the Jews. Who's guarding it? It's been consecrated. What do we do? He's involved in judicial procedures. He involves himself in it. Nobody asked him. He's involved in the torturing of Jews and part of judicial procedure to try to get to the bottom of it. His father tells him to stop. His father doesn't see any great financial uh, success to be derived from the accusation of that Jews stole the Eucharist. But Juan I does ascend the throne in 1387. He tries his best. He also likes to hunt. He loves hunting. I am flipping through, you can imagine, volumes of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folios. And what am I looking for? I'm a Jewish historian, so I'm looking for the word Jew. I'm looking for names I know, because it takes a long time to read these documents. And at first, I have to tell you, I saw 
documents that the king would send to the royal falconer in Latin, the falconerio maiore. And I said, ah, I can skip that. I first skipped, who cares what he sends the royal falconer? Until I come across the document which says, and then the nickel fell, or to maybe some of you others, the asimon fell, something fell in my mind. Because what the document said was, the king is writing to Valencia and saying, my advisors tell me that I should come to Valencia. You're writing that I should come to Valencia and put the city under control. But I have to tell you, Chief Falconer, you've been promising to send me some birds now for a number of weeks, and they haven't arrived. And I, if I head to Valencia now, and another lady says, and it's so hot in Valencia during the summertime, it's really not a good place to be. He happens to be correct, at least climatologically speaking. That just know that if you find out that I have left the court in Saragossa, please send the birds either to Valencia or to where I am on the road. And that's when the nickel fell. Wow. He cares about the Jews. He wants to protect them, but he wants the birds. He wants the birds. Now, one could say, and legitimately, that he's also concerned that if he's going to enter a riot-torn city, he's going to be harmed. And he really does stay away. The first time he leaves Saragossa is he leaves in Yeva in the fall. That's in east, the western part of Catalonia. And the letters tell us about all the negotiations before he enters this town and the staged punishments that take place. I just tell you this little vignette to tell you that as we read the letters day after day after day, we can see the king threatening, screaming, yelling, punishing, and not moving. And you see what concerns him if you read every letter, including the letters to the falconers. He's concerned about himself. He's concerned about hot weather. He's concerned about food. He loves food, by the way. He orders food. He's traveling somewhere. And he's concerned about his wife. First of all, the letters have a tinge of romanticism insofar as I could penetrate ever letters from the 14th century. But also his wife, we know, Yolande, who is a French princess, has been unsuccessful in his mind of bearing him a son, which means an heir to the crown. There were some daughters who are still living. There's a son who died. And reading the letters of Yolant as well, and his letters, it becomes clear to me through hints that she is pregnant before the riots start. And he's solicitous of her health. And he does not want to move anywhere where he doesn't know about how she's doing. Queen Yolant, who seems to be far more hard-nosed than her husband, who is angry, that in Valencia, Jews have been converted and Jews have been harmed. They are her, her basis, her resources for her court. They're her income. And it's dispatches people to protect the Jews. I was able to chart letters between Joan and Yolande, and both of them, especially Joan the King, to physicians were you see that when the queen 
is taken ill because she has very bad pregnancies. All the letters about the Jews and her concern about the Jews ceases from her court. You have a king who is ambivalent about his royal responsibilities, and you have a queen who means well, even financially, but on the other hand, her main goal is to carry a child to term. She's concerned on her trips, on her voyage, that it's easier for her to travel by boat as opposed to on the road. The Duke, the only member of the royal family who was in a city, in Valencia, the first city that explodes against the Jews. He's been charged, and this was a dream of his father, who I mentioned before, of Pere, to secure the kingdom of Sicily for the Aragonese crown. It was controlled by Aragon, but not sufficiently. And he assembles a military expedition, a flotilla. And I track Marti, the duke, and his flotilla, and how he tries to raise funds from different governments and different towns. And what does Marti need? Marti needs quiet. If Barcelona is in turmoil, Valencia is in turmoil, he can't raise funds. What does Marti do? In a series of letters that boggled my mind, you see how he's negotiating with the Jews of a Catalan town called Camarasa for their conversion. Back and forth. We want no taxation. Okay, I'll give you free taxes for 10 years. Actual back and forth. The church is involved. We want their synagogue. Marti says, hands off. An actual engineered conversion. So the protection by rulers, Nachi, of even people who promise to protect us are only as good as who they are and as good as the people they have in the field. Marti, in his entourage, I see from letters, he has some riders who enjoy, while they're traveling with him on the expedition, to go off and ride against the Jews. You know, it's just only a couple of towns away. His goal is Sicily. Yolande's primary goal is a child born to term, who turns out, by the way, to be a girl, Antonia, who they're concerned about, and who dies before the last riots come to an end. And a king who is always balancing desire for leisure, love for his wife, the kingdom, we see that at one point. Remember, we talked about Jews being gathered into fortresses. When the queen approaches such a fortress, Jews who are gathered there, he makes sure to have released. He even does that in Perpignan all the way at the end. He doesn't think it's seemly that the queen should be in a palace or in a fortress protected, but still you have the refugee Jews who ran away. And he makes sure he clears them out. And then we also have letters that he tells them to clean up the mess. How human and therefore how tragic. Now, this retelling of the king in your book goes from page 193 to 270. So there's a lot on the king. Because he writes incessantly, and I could have, this was an interesting editing challenge. 
Should I cut it? But it is so rare for us, Nachi, in Jewish history to have a ruler talk, a king, talk about the Jews almost every day for 10 months. Not an episodic line of which everybody is offers their interpretation of a line, but almost every day for 10 months. It was interesting how you mentioned the queen almost caring more for the Jews. I mean, she's, she's like you mentioned, French, and the Jews are expelled from France. Yeah, there are expulsions and there are expulsions. She grows up at the court of her uncle Charles V. At that time, France, French during the 14th century is a Jewish community that was expelled, invited back, expelled, invited back. The 14th century in France is really a, a lesson in what it means to live, if you will, in the diaspora. But she learns at the court of Charles V, kind of question, oh, I'm come from a kingdom that expelled Jews, about what it means to have law and order, about what it means to have a glorious court, and what it means to have sufficient funds to protect the kingdom. As I said, nobody likes riots. Riots is mayhem. Even the fiercest anti-Semites in history didn't like riots. Obviously, what I'm thinking about is in, there is no comparison. And I'm not attempting one, but I just want you to understand the Sturm Abteilung was there during Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht was frightening to Hitler and his associates because wild people running around that's not what you want. The SS, order, hierarchy, programs. There is no comparison, none. But I'm using it only to give you an idea that governments don't want people running around stealing property from others and killing others, whatever their internal sensibilities are. You mentioned the quote when you wanted to name the book, as if the Jews had no Lord, have no Lord. So that comes from the king. You want to just talk about that for a minute? Oh, I'd be glad to. This came because letters in early of 1392, the king says, because the king is angry after the riots. And what is he angry about? Yes, the murder of the Jews, but let's say majesty. He's angry that nobody protected his Jews that they treated royal authority and royal property with abandon. And he says, as any good feudal monarch would say, you treated the Jews como los judíos no habían, señor, did not have a lord. I'm their lord. Just because I'm not standing there. And by the way, Nachi, there are moments in the, in the book where I tell you about when the king is telling a local government how to protect the Jews, he says, why don't you place royal pennants around the Jewish quarter? Little pennants, little flags. The king in his royal imagination is that if people see little royal flags, what are they going to do? Oh my goodness, this is the king's property, I won't touch it. It's, it's like a rioter, little pennants are not exactly going to make a difference. It's like, let them eat cake. Yeah, but that is a, yes, in the sense of a king being clueless. But that's all he has. 
He has flags because he's not moving. Look, a kink is only good as if you can order somebody to move and they move and they haven't. There are some instances where they did. But the reason why that also captured me as a possible title, because one of the themes throughout the book, although never explicitly focused on, is the anti-Jewish rhetoric, is anti-Jewish animus from Christianity. And for Christian theology, for classical Christian theology, Jews, as you know, were the chosen people of God. But at the turning point of history, guilty of deicide, of killing God's only son, God withdrew God's protection from God's chosen people. So for Christians, they would say, there is no longer a senor, no Lord watching over you. And in fact, that understanding by Christians, here I say as a medieval Jewish historian, is also the understanding of Jews. Jews will often in writings, in Ashkenaz, in Sepharad, thinking especially in Ashkenaz before the Crusades, will talk about a Christian Lord, that that Lord was sent by the Lord. In one text from the Crusade Chronicle, Asuk and Yoel, and we know it from our Tfilot on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Kerachim Av Albanim. The idea of a Lord, the feudal Lord, protecting his people. Because in that way, he is a shaliach, he's a messenger of the Lord. That's God's messenger here on earth. The Gentile authority to whom we've entrusted our security. Now, as we've discussed in this podcast, you've mentioned a lot your sources. So your main sources being the records and the letters that you went through. I don't know if you want to just mention anything more about them because we mentioned them. And then we mentioned of Chesed Kreskas, who, him being your main Jewish source. Where can people read that letter? And were ah. there other Jewish sources that you used? No. Um, there are, uh, sorry, not first saying no. The overwhelming, overwhelming documentation and I mean overwhelming as in 99.9% come from governmental sources. We have poetry written in the 15th century, not exactly sure when some of those poems were actually written, that mention in this keynote in Piyutim, mainly keynote as you can imagine, lamentations, mention some of the events of the riots, but they're written 30, 40, 50 years later, and they're highly stylized. Sometimes they're just towns that are mentioned. I purposefully wanted to focus my attention on 10 months so I could, and you never can, avoid interpretive stratagems that are written after the fact. Although, the wise amongst us understand that even immediately after the fact, you're immediately telling your story. Anybody who was involved, if I may, God should watch over us in a car accident, immediately when they tell the story, they always shape the story. There's no thing of telling things exactly as they are. That having been said, we do have one Hebrew source. It was doubted for a while. So there are some scholars who thought maybe it was a later forgery. But it's clear that the letter of Chastai Kreskis 
to the community of Avignon in southern France, which he wrote in October of 1391. As I show in my book, in October of 1391, it was a quiet time. It was a lull in the riots. The king says, now there are not many riots anymore. And Chastai Kreskus, who we know is sitting with the king, felt the same way. They thought in October 1391 it was over and it was you could reflect. Why did the Jews of Avignon turn to Chastai Kreskus and ask him for a report? We don't know. Ah, speculation. There's a pope at Avignon in the late 14th century. There's a papal schism. But we're just, we're really blown bubbles. We have no idea whatsoever. So Crescus writes, and as I mentioned before, and if I use a term taken from another context, liturgical context, it's a tzidukadin. It's a justification, I don't mean here of God's law, but a justification of Crescus himself. He tells the community in Avignon what happened in Castile. He talks about those who remain true to their faith and is clearly upset, especially in Castile, when he talks about the conversion. His heroes, he mentions, are the holy seed, the Zera Kodesh of Asher ben Yechiel, of Rosh, whom some of you listeners may know, traveled from war-torn Germany. So that suffered from the Rindfleisch massacres. His teacher, Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg, Maharam, who had been imprisoned under false charges and travels to Barcelona, where he hangs out with Rashba for a week, who realizes his greatness and dispatches him to Toledo to be a rabbi. So here you have a family, the Asherites, if you want to say it in nice English, the children of Rabbeinu Asher, whom he sees as extolling, as rather promoting the true virtues of Kiddush Hashem rather than conversion. When it comes to Valencia, he appears, and Cranberry appears to be less judgmental. But what you see in Chastai Kreskus's letter I still can only use him as a source in tandem with the other sources. Like I told you, ah, I see he's reporting on the riots. The king, I can see that in October, and the documents prove that it's a lull. He looks at it from his own religious perspective and his own activities. His own activities are diplomatic actions and financial emoluments, and that tragic line where he says, my only son, I offered up as a fully burnt sacrifice. What he expected the Jews of Avignon to read in this letter, I don't know. There isn't information there that he could run to the Pope at Avignon that would be helpful. It's hard to know. It's truly hard to know. So is the letter available anywhere if anyone wants to read it? The letter is available. The letter is available in snippets in my book. It's available in, uh, among other places, some folks might have Franz Kobler's Letters of Jews Throughout the Ages. 
It's available in Hebrew in so many sources, most recently in the biography of the great student of Kreskis's philosophy, Zev Harvey, in a book titled Chastai Kreskis. Um, I imagine it's online as well. Um, the letter that appears in a volume that was published in Jerusalem uh, about a conference on Chastai Kreskis has the best text, which is the text that comes from late 15th century Italy, um, the full text of the letter that Chastai Kreskis wrote to the Jews of Avignon. So to wrap up, um, and we said all the way in the beginning that this was the beginning of the end of Spanish Jewry. What happens after the riots? Now, the book focuses mainly on the riots, but what happens in Spain after 1391? Many are killed, many are forcibly converted. What happens to Jewry for the next yes. century? In brief? I, as you can imagine, um, this deserves its own, uh, uh, its own time. But I will bring it up to the exile, at least in brief uh, recounting. The first thing I'd like to say is, because we are 21st century individuals with the knowledge of the mid 20th century etched in our minds. So when Nachi says this is the beginning of the end, it might trigger for some people an idea of, oh, so a century before, everyone knew that it was over. But as I said, I think at the beginning of the program, history doesn't proceed in a lineal fashion. We can tell in retrospect that 1391 was the beginning. But strikingly, not because of the murder of the Jews, not because of Jewish institutions being destroyed, not because of synagogues being converted into churches, but precisely because of the Jews who were forcibly baptized. There are other instances in Jewish history in medieval Jewish history and in Jewish history in Iberia, where there were forced conversions, times of the Visigoths in the 7th century, times of the Almoachidun in the 12th century, from which Maimonides, Rambam, and his family leave, when is not clear, and again in 1391. It's very difficult to acculturate masses of individuals who are now part of your faith. I want to say this globally, because I want you to appreciate whenever there are a large number of immigrants, large number of people come to your faith. It's always challenging. It's always difficult for the majority culture. One individual joins your synagogue, you can dance around him or dance around her. Hundreds and hundreds come. Social anxieties religious anxieties, economic anxieties. Because after you've converted, you get up in the same place that you've always lived with the same neighbors you've always had in the occupation that you've always worked at. But slowly over time, hard to know what to call these individuals. Each word, each term is laden, these converts, these conversos. Later, they'll be called Maranos. It's unclear who really starts that. That means pigs. Hard to imagine Christians calling new Christians. It's another term, pigs. 
or pig eaters come puercos. I can't imagine who might call them that. The these individuals now in some become successful members of Christian society. They get positions in the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The great Shlomo Halevi, who converted before 1391, becomes Pablo de Santa Maria, one of the great Christian interpreters of the Bible. Other Jews become very important and very, very famous Christian leaders. Jews get involved in municipal government. They become notaries themselves. <laughs> Jews begin, rather converted Jews, begin to also now just not live only within the Jewish quarter, although that was not a ghetto. They move into Christian neighborhoods. And a lot of the economic tensions and anxieties that Christians felt towards Jews are now being felt towards these new Christians. Religious concerns. Are they truly, sincerely Christian? Riots break out in 1449 in the city of Toledo against the king, but against whom? The new Christians. How about the Jews? The Jews, after about the first two decades, 1391 to 1416, pretty much reestablished them themselves in Castile and Aragon. In Castile, more successfully in small cities. In Aragon, much less so as Barcelona. Remember, you quoted Crescas, there are no Jews left in Barcelona. Aragon really takes a hit. Maybe a third of the population is left as it was there before for a variety of reasons. And it's the anxiety about the new Christians that leads to debates in Spanish society about what to do with them, about attempts, either educational attempts, yes, sincere educational attempts to help induct them into a Christian life. And those, on the other hand, who said, hey, they're officially Christian, and if they're still observing Judaism, and they don't believe, then they're heretics, and they should be killed. And you know who won. The party that said, let's investigate. Oh, there was a papal inquisition ever since the early 13th century in southern France. But Ferdinand and Isabella, lovely couple, I must say, one of the major uh, advisors to Ferdinand and Isabella who helped that uh, match take place was uh, Abraham Senor, who was the Rab de la Corte. Anyway, Fernand and Isabella plead with the church. They want an inquisition on their own terms. The inquisition had been papal. And a weakened papacy under Pope Sixtus IV grants Fernand and Isabella right to run an inquisition in their own kingdoms. Contrary to popular imagination, what later becomes the Spanish Inquisition is not a church institution. It's a royal institution. Isabella establishes an inquisition in Castile, Ferdinand in Aragon. Isabella starts off in uh, Seville, where the riots started, Ciudad Real, called then Villa Real, on the way to Toledo later, and Ferdinand starts an inquisition in Saragossa. Again, Nachi, so 
much history to tell, but briefly, the inquisitors, as you know, established their trials. And what they report to Ferdinand and Isabella is that it seems like under investigation that most of the new Christians are really observing Jewish rituals. So just briefly, should we imagine that that's true? Now, we're not fond of inquisitors. We don't appreciate their judicial procedure. We don't think torture yields the truth. Though for the inquisitors, torture was just torturing the body to save the soul, and they really believe that. But rather, the inquisitors are looking for signs of Judaism. So if you're a person who went to Christmas Mass, goes every Sunday to church, celebrates Easter, but yes, took an invitation from your aunt and uncle and showed up at a Seder meal once in 1486, you're Judaized. If you fasted on Yom Kippur, don't imagine these new Christians as theologians. What does it mean 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, living in a Christian environment where you still have relatives who are Jews, who you're shuffling back and forth between these religions? And if you will, your uncle comes to you and says, you know, by the way, tomorrow's a very, very holy day. Try not to eat. And you don't eat. The Inquisitor is not a humanist who's looking at the picture and writing a biography of you and says, oh, they observe some Jewish practices, some Christian, they're mixed. What are they looking for? They're looking for Judaism. And inquisitors are correct. Many of these folks were observing. I don't want you to imagine, please, that all these new Christians, no triumphalist history now, that everybody, as soon as they converted, made sure to have eat only Shmura Matzah during Pesach. Please put it out of your minds. Or in more common parlance, they all went down to the basement and lit Friday night candles. They, in fact, please understand this is humor, that in, uh, new Christians when looking for houses refused to buy houses that didn't have basements because otherwise, how could they light candles? So they had to make sure that there was only, they only the real estate agents knew only basements would do. Please put that out of your mind. Again, focus on the humanity of individuals, the confusion, the push and the pull. And the inquisitors, what do they see? Judaizing. By the way, a separate issue is variety of rabbinic attitudes, mainly in Shelot Chuvot, but also in other literatures of how to treat these Anusim. And again, what are they looking for sometimes? If it's an issue of a get, you're looking for signs of Christianity, because then you could say that the wedding never took place, that the Kiddushin was never chal, never had any legal force. But again, we move away from theoretical discussions or legal discussions, and at least my concern is to focus on these human beings Yes, some of them Judaized. The Inquisitors report that of Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492 can decide to expel the Jews from Castile and Aragon. And do you know why they could afford to do it, Nachi? Because that now there was a thriving new Christian population. You didn't need the Jews economically as much. 
Ferdinand and Isabella could use their weight as these great monarchs also to pressure Portugal, who converts them. Because in Portugal, 1391 never took place. Oh, the year did, but no forced conversions. There weren't many conversos. They couldn't afford to let go of the Jews. So we know what they did. They blockaded the harbor and there were mass baptisms. The little kingdom of Navarre that we mentioned earlier, which I studied and wrote about, that kingdom of Navarre was landlocked. As Nachi said, Jews weren't allowed in France. They couldn't go to Castile and Aragon. They were landlocked. It's a mass conversion as well. So you have Jews left in the peninsula as Christians. Many of them will try to come out over the next couple of centuries. Subject of other future podcasts, I'm sure, in your future, Nachi. But we will also trace the Jews who left. Going to North Africa, going to Italy, eventually the Ottoman Empire later next century. And in a way, coming back to the Mediterranean Near East from which their community first came from, and the story of their domination and the creation of Sephardic communities is a glorious story, which also needs to be told. So, you know, I think, first of all, you're, you're the people's conception of conversos, or Moranos, again, to use the populace when they're used to, is probably read a lot of the family Iagular by Marcus Lehman. I wonder if that, they are another popular uh, books, probably is where they get that from. You mentioned Abraham Signore, he converts. You know, he's the advisor with Abarbanel. Abarbanel famously leaves, but Senor yes. does stay and convert. That's right. And his son-in-law, Meir Malamed. Yes, and they, he's an aged man, and he maintains some of his influence at court. And Abarbanel famously, as you said, leaves. I just, when we see who leaves, again, a complex story. But you wouldn't be surprised that the people who can leave are the people who are closer to the ports, the people who are on main roads. I'd like to share with you a little story found in other archival expeditions of mine, because it's so telling. A Jewish family from Biel in the, in the kingdom of Aragon, within the crown of Aragon, is waiting to the last moment to leave, because the last day of you're allowed to live in Aragon is July 31st. Why does he wait to the last moment? Most of the Jews do. Because you know what real estate prices happen to Jews, what they or prices what they owned? Everything that they own, people were just going to give them a cent on a dollar. Or say, hey, I'll wait it out till you leave. Debts couldn't be collected. So you waited to the last moment to get as much as you can. They are thinking of going off to Navarre, which is not far. Beal is not far from the Navarrese border. And as it says a few months later, there was a rainstorm. Hey, Chubasco, a rainstorm in Aragon on the Navarrese border on July 31st, and their wheels of their wagon were caught in the mud. They became Christian. Because if you stayed after July 31st, you were Christian. Why do I tell you this minor story? Because it's human. Abravanel could live, could leave, and Abravanel should please forgive me. And I'm not sure he would. He could leave on a flotilla of boats 
with an awning that could protect him from the sun. Don Yisachem Bravenel was a great individual, a great Jew. But I do want you to appreciate what it means to be well off and the resources at your command. And what it is to be a little Jewish family in a village trying to get out and wait until the last day that maybe you could gather enough funds to go to Navarre where Jews were fleeing. You mentioned Navarre. That's your first book, I believe. The Last Jews on Iberian Soil, Navarre's Jewry, 1479-1498. So that is uh, just throw, you mentioned that as your book. I, mentioned I, moved from, I moved from 20 years to 10 months. Maybe my next book, Nachi, should be better day. <laughs> and I see you liking the subtitle. Or I don't know if you do or the, the press <laughs> likes putting in the years. That seems to be a thing also. Years I, I, mean a lot to me. I just want to ask you, once we've ran this long, we can add a, a little bit here, is that we, we mentioned a lot of the conversos of the 15th century. But what about the Jews, especially the Rabbanim who's left in Spain? Um, people may be familiar with Yosef Kanpantan and his Darke, Gemara, Darke, Talmud. He has Talmudim, Ramesh Alashker, who's from there, and leaves. There are other Rabbanim yes. in the area. There are, so there, I just want to point out, there, what is the, the Jewish life? For the actual Jews that stay stay Jewish, like in Spain, in that there century. are many rabbinic figures. They're Talmudists, they're philosophers, they're halachists, they're moralists. You did notice that I've been not talking about them, generally speaking. Not first of all because we don't have that much information, but also that my interest lies. I don't imagine that Talmudists are Jewish leaders. And conversely, I surely don't imagine that Jewish leaders are Talmudists. It's rare that you have a person like Chastai Kreskes who's intellectually brilliant and is a Jewish leader. So when you talk about Jewish life, if you mean a flourishing Jewish intellectual life, that is fascinating. Now, we're not looking at Jews generally but we're looking at a cadre of elite Jews. In fact, what I'm working on now is focusing on elite Jews in the generation after 1391. Rivash is one. Kreskis is another. Krofiat Duran, commentator on the guide, Educating educational philosopher par excellence studied the Bible, whom we know was converted as well in Perpignan. And we also know, hot off the press only the last few years, that he traveled to Italy and there was a Jew. And then he went back to Perpignan and he assumed a different identity. Poets. But if you talk about Jewish life generally, Nachi, then we're talking about people and their Judaism. And I don't know how much, if I may, you learn about people and their Judaism from reading the philosophical work of Crescus. Or from reading Sefer Ikarim, because you mentioned, of Albo. Or reading the poetry of Bonafed. Or the moralism of uh, Shlomo Alami or the brilliant Talmudic analysis of Yitzchak Kampanton, or the biblical exegesis of 
Yosef Karo's uncle. You know, I answered your question by framing it in the answer that I wish to say, which is, yes, these people continue to produce and continue to study. And yes, we know of yeshivot. By the way, we know of yeshivot, and it's very interesting what information we have about yeshiva and Sfarad in this later time. Everybody had a Talmud curriculum, but then you'd also go to a, a, a yeshiva with a focus more on Kabbalah, or they focused more on philosophy. In other words, you went to a school where you studied the basics, Talmud and Halakha, and there the fight is the role also of Tanakh, which Ephodi, the pen name of Prof. Yeturan, fiercely argued for. You can imagine the Bible is a playground between Jews and Christians, and Jews need to know Tanakh. But then those schools could also be inflected with a Kabbalistic overlay or philosophical overlay. And many times Kabbalah and philosophy, Nachi, are not as far apart as we imagine. They're both as exercises of the intellect. They both take stories in our Torah, in the Bible, and they're looking for deeper meaning. That the meaning of the stories, whether it's the story of the Nachash and Gan Eden, the snake in the Garden of Eden, or the story of uh, Yaakov wrestling with the Malach, they're looking for meaning beyond the story. And in that sense, philosophers and Kabbalists agree wholeheartedly. It just can't be what I'm reading. It has to be far It's like with Ramos says in Torah, Kabbalah Kabbalah, philosophy is the same, just in like a different language. But um, a couple of things there. So you mentioned uh, Prophet Duran. I think that was a book by Maud Kozadoy, the yes. pastor, her name, right? The Secret book. Faith of Mishra and Yeah, from, from Penn. That's wonderful um, book. Now, I, I didn't actually go through the whole book, but there's a book on at the end, Chachmei Sorad Be'in Asairo, the old Marciano in Hebrew. Yes. And yes. based on the yeshivas of this time period. And as you mentioned, there are Rebbe Kampanton, is Salvador Shmuel Valencia, and I mentioned the Rosh Lashker who leaves. You mentioned Rebbe Yosef Karo's uncle, the Yitzchak Karo, and this Toldas Yitzchak, you have Akedas Yitzchak, Karama, a Barbanel himself, who, you know, and then he, Portugal, he has his Rebbe, Rebbe Sifchion, who we have worked That's with him right. in Portugal. Just, just right. mentioning, and, I, and exactly, you need to answer the question and how, how you want it. I just wanted to um, point this out for the listeners. There's, so there still are Kedoylem, there still are major Rabbanim left in Spain at this time. Ah, see, because that then says, Nachi, and this is where I take issue with you. Yes, just because there is a devastation, that doesn't mean because there was an absence of learned Jews or a plethora of learned Jews. That's confusing learned Jews with being leaders or with having influence over the public. And that's also not imagining that learned Jews have their own conflicts, their own balances. Feel for the Rivash. Do you think Yitzhak Barsheshit Perfet was happy walking around in Franciscan robes? I'm asking you also to expand your notion because talking about Gedolim is also conflating leadership with learning and it's doing something else. It's imagining that those who are learned are pure of mind 
settled of heart, and people actually listen to what they say. That's a lot of assumptions. I think we live now in the 21st century, especially in some communities where we can imagine that being the reality. I won't say it is the reality, but we can imagine it being the reality. And then we take that reality and we retroject it backwards. I think what a Jewish historian does is he faces a period in history and tries, it's not easy, to put aside their assumptions, aside from their prejudices. And just tells me, what does this tell me and what does this teach me? The moment that we begin very consciously to try to map the present onto the past, we begin to distort history. But obviously we distort history because what we want from history is to support the life and the choices we make today. That's a conundrum for all historians. I'm also a 21st century individual. I can't pretend I don't come with my assumptions. But yes, if you wish to stress that there were many, many learned Jews in Sepharad whom we would be proud to be associated with and whom we do associate with by reading their words, yes, we can. Okay, and uh, I think we, so we ended up, even though this was about 1391, 1392, we did in brief cover the 15th century, which there's a lot more to say, but in brief, and there's other episodes in this series wherever this comes out, so before or after, about the Inquisition, the Papal Inquisition, the Inquisition, the expulsion in 1492, the expulsion forced conversion in Portugal in 1497, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, uh, we'll link your book in the show's notes, uh, Anti-Jewish Riot, R- Anti-Jewish Riot in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, 1391-1392. Uh, is there any other further reading, suggested reading that you would like to suggest, whether your own or others for the listeners? Um, there are two classic works on the Jews of Spain that in some respects outdated, but still have much information. Both were originally published in Hebrew, and that's uh, Ashtor's Jews of Muslim Spain, Eliyahu Ashtor and Yitzchak bears a history of the Jews in Christian Spain. I'm proud to say that a student of mine, a great scholar on his own, uh, Jonathan Ray, uh, is publishing a new history of the Jews in medieval Spain called Jewish Life in Medieval Spain, which should appear in a few months, and I'm looking forward to that. On specific topics, That would be a challenge, what to suggest and what to recommend. May I say, if you're interested geographically, works on Jews in Portugal are mostly written in Portuguese. And smaller studies on Castile and Aragon are written in Spanish. If you're interested in in biography, ah, there's a lovely new biography of Ramban. I mentioned Zev Harby's a very fine book on Chastai Kreskis. Um, people have written on a variety of scholars that have populated uh, the Jewish landscape of Sefarad. 
since you asked me, this is an essay. Um, I wrote a essay on Jewish elite literature, culture, if you will, of the Jews in Christian Iberia. In other words, the period post-reconquest. Um, and that appears as a chapter within a large one volume, also published in three volumes, uh, History of Jewish Culture by David Beale, called The Cultural History of the Jews. Um, and it starts with a letter written in 1391. In fact, a Hebrew letter by uh, Yehoshua Halorki, who lives in Alkanith in Aragon, and writes a letter to his teacher, uh, Shlomo Halevi, but now Pablo de Santa Maria. And it's an extraordinarily striking letter about seeking reasons for his teacher's conversion. And to sit with that letter and to read it is to understand the social, communal, intellectual, religious pressures, the swirl of cultures that are around. What I just ask all of the listeners to do is to bring the empathy that they show toward themselves and towards their family and towards their community and to others in this world and to bring it to the past too. Because without empathy for the past, you'll never begin to understand it. So good luck on your journeys. If there is another book that comes to mind, I'm happy to send it along, Nachi. But just to give you a long list, I don't know how productive it will be. In that essay that I just mentioned to you, I do have a short bibliography. Is that essay, is that essay available on your academia or somewhere that I could link to? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. So, so I can link that for the listeners. Uh, Professor Ray, who's also part of this series, listeners will have Excellent. heard him, and there'll be another episode from him. Yes, that book, by the time this episode comes out, it may be published. That's uh, Penn University Press. If it's out, I'll link to it. Ashton and Barrow link to. Ramban, are you referring to Oded Israelis in Hebrew? Yes, Which I one am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, that's These are a... intellectual biographies. These are biographies that are interested in, well, more in the commentaries and the strains in the commentary than, but understandably, there's less information on the individuals and their lives. Because often the individuals and their lives, their actual lives, have been forgotten. And it's really the books that are speaking for them in the grave, if you will. Yeah, that's in Hebrew from Magnus University Press. I, yes. I at Magnus University, Magnus Press, it's Hebrew University. But uh, Professor Israeli, I actually have an interview with him. I have a podcast recorded. I don't know if it will be released by the time this comes out or not. So either I'll refer listeners back to it or they should stay tuned for it uh, as well. And uh, you know, we ran long. Hopefully listeners enjoyed. And uh, thank you, Professor Kantel, so for uh, coming on the podcast once again. And Nathie, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You're a wonderful person to look at while I speak. I really enjoy your active face and your interest and your knowledge and your inquisitiveness. More power to you. Thank you for that, for the kind words. And thank you once again for joining me.